Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 211, we're talking about the many Bitcoin and Lightning development grants that Square Crypto have given, also some grants in terms of Bitcoin design, and also how can the space defend its Bitcoin and cryptocurrency patents and protect the culture of permissionless innovation. Steve Lee of Square Crypto rejoins me on the show. This show is brought to you by swanbitcoin.com, the best place to auto stack your Bitcoin in the US with incredibly easy setup and low fees. I personally appreciate that Swan is Bitcoin only and is dedicated to Bitcoin education. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash Levera to get $10 of free Bitcoin when you start stacking with Swan. And Swan has some news to share. They've had massive demand for daily buys since the day they launched the service. One of the big positives of regular recurring buys is smoothing out price volatility. So buying daily will catch those dips even better than buying weekly. There are a limited number of spots in the Swan Daily Buys beta. So head over to swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys to get into the beta. That's swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys. This show also brought to you by Unchained Capital, Bitcoin native financial services. Unchained Capital are building products on the foundation of multi-signature. And if you are looking for ways to improve your Bitcoin security, why not consider going from zero to multi-sig with Unchained? They're offering a vault concierge onboarding package so you can have a guided setup call and have the hardware wallet devices mailed out to you. The prices range depending on if you need hardware wallet devices or if you've already got them. And you can use the code Levera for a discount. And that will include a call to set you up on the service and $1,000 of Bitcoin to start in your vault. Unchained Capital also offer a range of open source contributions into the space, such as Caravan, which is an open source multi-signature coordinator. So you can go and check that out also. Go to unchained-capital.com to find out more. Next is CypherSafe, producing the Cypher wheel. Have you backed up your seed? So when you set up your hardware wallet or other wallets, you write down that 12 or 24 word BIP39 seed. Well, make sure that's backed up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof and tamper evident. The cipher wheel comes in a wheel shape and you can slide it around and it masks the words of your actual seed and you receive some tiles and essentially you slide in four letters per word. Now you can also get a padlock tamper evident seal so you know if it has been opened. So make sure your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs. Orders are going out, go and get yours at cyphersafe.io. Use the code Lavera for 10% off. And finally, Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets. For example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox. Knox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. No fractional coverage or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth. A tool to transfer risk. Knox is backed by investors such as Fidelity Investments Canada, Initialized Capital and Inovia. If you are a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust or family office, check out Knox for your insured custody. The website is knoxcustody.com. Here's my interview with Steve. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Stefan. Glad to, glad to be here. Steve, I see you guys have been very busy over at Square Crypto uh, since we last spoke. You've been doing a lot of work in different in different arenas as well. You've got uh, the grants going, design, and this uh, crypto patent stuff. So tell us a little bit about uh, you know what you've been doing over the last few months. Yeah, I think it's been about a little less than eight months since we last chatted, and uh, it's been it's been a busy busy twenty twenty for us. Um, 
would love to to go over many of the the grants we've give, given out and any questions you might have about that that you think our our audience might um, be interested in. Um, and uh, yeah, happy to cover the design community and and uh, the Open Patent Alliance as well. And we can, if there's time at the end, would love to give a update on where we're at with the Lightning Development Kit progress too. The core team has been hard at work on, on that, and I, I think we'll soon soon have some uh, some good stuff there too. Excellent. Well, look, let's start with some of the grants you've had. I've I've lost count of how many. Uh, you've got uh, Lightning Signer Project. You've got yeah. Well, let's start with that. So, what is the Lightning Signer Project? Yeah, we. I think we, last time we spoke, we had two grants that we'd given out to to BTCPay Server and to ZMN SCPXJ. And I think I think we're up to fifteen now. It, it's even hard for me to to keep track. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's see. So yeah, we'll start with Lightning Signer Project. So that's a project that. Um, a developer named Dev Random and uh, Ken Sedgwick are working on. It's a Lightning infrastructure project which enables signing Lightning Lightning transactions and, and Lightning state updates in hardware security modules. So be that on like an iPhone or Android phone or enterprise systems. Either way, um, what that does is it, it improves security for for Bitcoin and for Lightning. Um, by imposing uh, policies on what are valid transactions that can be signed. And if they don't fit sort of the, the organizational policies or the wallet's policies and also fit sort of standard lightning transactions, then they would be rejected. It, it's just a way to reduce the attack surface of lightning. Right. So as an example... In Lightning, the keys have to be hot. And so what this could be is kind of like a warm wallet or something like that. And the idea is that you could set up rules such that it will only sign the channel state update if it meets certain rules. And that is like a, we could think of that like an infrastructure to help the space in terms of building and using lightning in a way that's managing the safety and security but also having the convenience like managing that trade-off a little bit better would you say absolutely that that that's correct so you can imagine a future where you're a, you're an exchange or a, a merchant and, and you're handling a significant amount of bitcoin um that needs to be in a hot wallet for lightning as you point out this sort of makes it a warm wallet um, it's still it's still connected, but you can significantly reduce the the number of ways that a, a hacker attacker could access the the Bitcoin. Um, and then on an individual level, on a on a mobile phone, you can imagine a future in maybe perhaps three four years where uh, your iPhone or your HTC or Samsung Android phone actually has this built in to their um, their security mechanism and, and their their uh, secure enclave on the phone because i think right, like the titan chip and things yep because like today <clears throat> uh if you run a bitcoin wallet on your iphone probably that wallet stores the private key in the secure enclave which is step number one that's great if it does that but if your wallet actually signs a transaction it has to read that private key into main memory and all of a sudden, the, the benefits, the security benefits you had of storing it in the secure enclave go away because if there happened to be malware or zero-day attack that could 
access main memory, but not the secure enclave, it could then access that private key. So um, step two for securing on a mobile phone is being able to not only store the private key in the secure enclave, but signing Bitcoin transactions. And then the third step would be to sign Lightning transactions. And it's a very complex project. It's, it's, you have to put a non-trivial amount of the Lightning Network state machine in firmware in these secure enclaves, and that's what this project is about. I see, yeah. And so as part of that, it might involve putting certain rules into the firmware so that it'll, so it'll say, for example, only sign the update if you know the money is coming in this way or it meets certain policy rules, and that kind of is part of the Lightning channel state update aspects. That's right. I think their website lists like 20 example policies that you could implement, and, and there's probably even more. Um, but but the way, but how you described it is is exactly right. Um, so this this project is um, it's it's just it, it's obviously all all these projects are free open source software. Um, this is not tied. This project is not tied to any particular Lightning implementation. This this should benefit the overall ecosystem, whether someone's running LND or C Lightning or or, or LDK. So we're we're excited about this infrastructure project. Yeah. And with these grants, are they generally done on like a time basis or are they done on sort of like a, we're paying you for this result? What sort of, uh, what's the way that most of the grants are being done? The way we structure the grants are time-based. So many are 12 months. Uh, the ones we, we'll talk a little in a little bit about some designer grants. We've, we've typically done six months for those. Um, but uh, there's no particular, you know, duration that, that uh, it has to be, but but they're time based. There's a lot of vetting up front to make sure that make sure it's sort of obvious that you know we believe that this is a valuable project for Bitcoin. Typically, a criteria for us is that it doesn't have an obvious business model. Because if it has an obvious business model, then my recommendation to the you know applicant is to you know go go start your own business. Um, we want to we want to fund high impact, valuable projects that that don't necessarily have a business model and, and are often underinvested because of that. Uh, we look at, of course, you know, do we think the, the, the person or team can execute on it and make it happen? Uh, and the last criteria, which is the least obvious, is, is that we, we want to make sure that they, they can sort of be their own boss because we, you know, I, I don't manage any of the grantees, no, no one at Square does or Square Crypto. Um, so we want to make sure that like each morning they wake up and they're excited about their project, uh, know, know what the next step is to, to make progress on it. And, and I'm really happy to say that, you know, putting that time and effort up front while we evaluate uh, grants has, has paid off. And I, I'm really happy with all of our grantees. Yeah. And uh, while we're on this topic of just kind of the meta or the broader aspect of grants in Bitcoin, I think, yeah, you make a great point around how we want people who can make a business out of it to do that. Uh, and I think it just tends to be that some of the more protocol level work is not so easily monetizable. And perhaps those are the things that are more suitable for a grant. But I, I think I've also, you know, reflecting some of the you know, Bitcoin community, obviously coming from a more capitalist perspective, and some of them have a have expressed a bit of a concern that, oh, is that really a sustainable way if things are done through donations? Um, you know, everything needs to be done as a business, that kind of thing. That's like a concern that I've seen as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a fair concern. And it, I mean, it, it merits discussion. Um, I, I, I feel fortunate to be at, at Square and that Square, um, you know, gives Square Crypto a budget to, to do this type of investment. I hope it, I hope it lasts indefinitely. 
Um, I mean, I'm really encouraged this year at the number of other organizations and companies that are are now doing the same, you know, very similar types of funding, like OKCoin and Bitmex and Kraken, uh, Bitseed. Just n- many, many organizations are doing the same thing. So I think that's the the, the trend is positive. Um, but yeah, having said that, anytime there's an opportunity where there is a, a natural business model that, consi- that that allows for that organization to, to be consistent in terms of Bitcoin principles and keeping, uh, you know, just staying true to Bitcoin, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, following a, a business model makes sense, which, which is why, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a free market capitalist person. So that's why I do encourage people to, to follow that route if, if it makes sense. I also think there's a chance that with some of our grants that um, over time after the infrastructure and the free open source software gets developed, that those uh, developers or designers could go on to build a business around it as well. Um, and and we're, we're perfectly comfortable with, with that as well. I see, yeah. And I guess that then uh, it reminds me very much of something like, say, the Red Hat model. model. So uh, some of these grant uh, grantees might develop some of this technology and then be the one to go and consult out to an exchange and say, hey, I'll consult with you to help you set up your you know, lightning signing module to help your security. And that could be a consulting um, revenue for them also. Yeah, that's that's definitely one path. There's certainly there's potential in wallets to have like a freemium model where, where certain services um, users pay for. Uh, you know, Wasabi and Samurai, I think, are are doing that. And uh, Electrum, I think, has some kind of uh, paid option with a two-factor. Um, so those are just examples of, of what could potentially be done there. I, I could imagine a future with multi-sig custody um, kind of a CASA model where it's it's more do-it-yourself than CASA, but like the fifth key or, or the, the you know, one, one of your end keys could be with a, a third-party provider in which you'd, you'd pay for that service. Yeah, that's that's a, those are some ideas for people to think about as well, the whole freemium idea. It's, it's tricky though in this space because I think people have, you might think, okay, well, let's have advertising, but then does that advertising also mean some kind of tracking? And is that like a concern from like a, you know, surveillance and privacy aspect? I, I can genuinely appreciate it's difficult for people to make a profitable Bitcoin business. Um, so yeah, but uh, I, let's uh, go back to, uh, yeah, some of the other grants that you guys have. So I see you've got um, Tancred Haas. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? Haas? Tancred? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I actually don't make me pronounce everyone's name because I actually haven't heard <laughs> But uh, yeah, Tank, Tank, Tancred, uh, he's great. Um, he started uh, maybe six months or so ago on, on, on his grant. And what he wanted to work on really, really uh, resonated with us in that he, he's very focused on improving the user experience for mobile wallets. And especially for new users, like he would love to just increase the conversion rate of people who do a first time buy on like Coinbase or Cash App or, you know, name, name your favorite um, exchange and getting them to move into a self-custodial model. And certainly a, a big barrier today with most wallets is that the first step you have to do when you install the wallet is write down, you know, 24 words and then type them back in. <laughs> um, and that's, and, and, you know, and at that, a lot of users at that point have no idea what this is, don't un- really appreciate the importance. 
and definitely find it to be a hassle. And I have no idea what the metrics are, but I, I suspect there, there's a lot of people who <laughs> drop off at that point um, and don't even, don't even do it. So he started a project called Photon, um, which will store the private key that's on the phone uh, in the cloud as a backup. So the recovery option is in the cloud and not stored, um, you know, in, in, in real life, like in a piece of paper or, or, or otherwise. And, you know, your, your initial reaction to that might be, oh, but security, you know, you don't want to store your private key in, in the cloud. And while that's certainly, I think, the right frame of mind, if you're storing a substantial amount of Bitcoin, if you are a brand new user and bought like $50 or $100 worth of Bitcoin, um, or if it's your spending wallet and you have something like the amount of money you'd have in your billfold or your purse, then I think the UX security trade-off for this project makes tremendous sense because there actually are a number of security measures he's taken in the project. The, the, the approach is to store an encrypted version of the private key in either iCloud or Google Drive, So if you have, depending on if you have an iPhone or an Android phone. And then the decryption key for that is stored in a separate server, and that's the Photon server that that is the software he built out. And that could be run by anyone. I think a common model would be that server would be run by whoever is the wallet provider. Um, and what protects that, the, the, the Photon library has a number, number of um, uh, ways to, to authenticate, to access your decryption key. Um, that sort of the default is a pin, a pin code. So the user experience is if you, you, you just use your mobile wallet like normal because the private key is in the phone, but let's say you lose your phone or you uninstall the wallet or you somehow lose access to that and you need to recover, you install a new version of your wallet. It asks for a pin code. You type in the pin code, which then fetches the um, decryption key from that server. And then that decryption key is then used to uh, decrypt the encrypted version of the private key stored in iCloud or, or Google. So as a user, you're, you're protected by your authentication to Apple or Google, and you're protected by that PIN code. And the PIN code in the, in the server that serves up the decryption key also is rate limited, so that you can only request you know, so, many, so many PIN code tries per, you know, I forget if it's per, per hour or per week. Um, until it throttles that. That reminds me a little bit of the Casa wallet model and also a little bit of um, Umbral are using a similar kind of thing in terms of like having like a deterministic backup go to their central server kind of thing. But I guess this is the idea that uh, other wallets could use that kind of approach and the idea would be this is for a new Bitcoiner and this is meant to be for smaller amounts of Bitcoin, obviously not for your main hodling stash, but if you are just getting started, this is kind of a way to ease you in such that you don't have to write down the, do the dreaded uh, 12 or 24 word, write it down and then get quizzed and tested on it when you set up your Bitcoin wallet. That's right. And it, it is very similar to, to CASA's and technically there's a slight difference. I think CASA takes a 24 word seed, splits it into two, two sets of 12 words, one set is one of the you know set of the twelve words is stored on Casa server, and the other twelve is in Apple or Google. I offhand I don't even know you know which is more which is more secure or less, but I, mean, I think they're they're roughly equivalent. 
Um, but the big difference is that Photon is structured as a library, like part of a F- software development kit that would allow any any wallet to integrate it. Um, so, you know, the, the the future I'm looking forward to is that in a few years, it would be odd to not have uh, a wallet that's intended for new users or spending wallet that doesn't have this type of functionality. And, and actually, just a few days ago, blockchain.com announced cloud backups with their wallet, um, which, which is a, an interesting direction. I, I looked, th- looked, glanced at their, their UX it, for, for them. It, I don't know if they have the same, if they get really the same user experience win because they still require you to do a 12 word backup. Um, but it is interesting to see more movement in this direction. Yeah. And I guess, uh, for all the, um, flack people throw at blockchain, uh, for you know being late laggards in terms of things like Segwit and so on, they do still have a very high SEO and are uh, a place where let's think of it from a Bitcoin newcomer's perspective. If you don't have an experienced person guiding you, you're just going to search Bitcoin online or in the App Store, and so typically some of those companies will come up first. So any movement forward uh, in from those companies should be you know. At least that's a good. It's a it's a step in the right direction. Yep. The last thing I'd say on the Photon project is that you know it's not only a library that wallets can choose to integrate, but it's parameterized in the sense it, it, it's um, as a wallet developer you you can choose different UX security options. So for example, the wallet might monitor what the the balance is in the wallet, and if it exceeds a certain threshold. The wallet can then warn the user, hey, you've exceeded this threshold. You might want to take more security precautions and either no longer um, store the, 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 the key in, in the cloud and perhaps even sweep the wallet or, or some other measure. Um, and also things like the PIN code, it's a variable number of digits. So the wallet can choose or even the user could choose. And there's, a, there's other uh, two-factor options that Photon Library has built in, including email and phone number. Um, in case you, you know, forget your PIN or the wallet could even choose to require both a PIN and like an email authentication. So there's a lot of different options that, that different uh, wallets will choose. Yeah, so hopefully uh, we, could, we, we see that kind of model uh, in terms of Bitcoin wallets. Maybe they can integrate that as a future feature or future possibility or new wallets coming down the pike in a couple of years. Maybe they will start with that kind of approach as a way to ease the new coiner in. So let's chat a little bit about the next one. We've got John Attack. Uh, He's doing a lot of Bitcoin Core review and contribution work. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the process with John? Absolutely. And I believe he was on your show last fall too. Um, Yes, he was. Talking about what it's like to try to get funded. And and at the time, uh, you know, I think he'd been contributing to Bitcoin Core for maybe six to eight months at that point and had yet, had yet to secure funding. So uh, I'm very proud to support uh, John and, and his work on Core. He had a proven track record from last year. Um, and he also has the, the, the right, just a great attitude, I think, for, for Bitcoin Core. He, he spends a, a substantial portion of his time doing reviews because he rightly has observed, just like most Core contributors, that re- reviewing PRs is the primary bottleneck on the project. Um, and for a lot of developers, it's not the most fun task to do. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if John uh, loves doing it or doesn't. But but the bottom line is he does it 
you know, he sees it's important and he, and he does that. Um, so he's, um, um, yeah, he's done a, a great job in core and continues to do so. Yeah, it's interesting that because I think there's different culture or different motivations around why people develop and contribute. And in some cases, it's more fun to write new code than it is to actually review other people's code and contribute in that broader sense. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why sometimes there's a bit of a bottleneck there in terms of getting review work done, which is actually what helps move things forward in terms of Bitcoin Core's process. Absolutely. And, and actually, um, there uh, maybe a month or two ago, there was some discussion on Twitter about, uh, I think it was Bitcoin Magazine or BTC Media created, um, was it Carrot.Earn or something like that? And, you know, they, they had a you know good intentions to try to incentivize developers to, uh, new developers to contribute to Core and, and had, had an incentive mechanism. Um, but the discussion around that was, Something that can seem good but actually be a burden on that project is a, a new contributor coming to the project, adding, creating a new PR, um, which if you're brand new to the project, the, a new PR is probably going to be relatively lightweight um, and not, not really super substantial. And it just increases the review burden. So the, the discussion that ensued was really healthy, I think. And a lot of people pointed out that what a new contributor to the core project could do that would be really valuable would be reviewing PRs, adding test cases, um, and and uh, adding documentation. Things like that can be very valuable contributions. You don't have to come up with the next whiz-bang crypto change or add a new feature. The, the real win and the real help to that project would be code reviews. Yeah, and I think that's also a point John has been making himself, uh, even when on the episode uh, he did with me, he was making that point also. So I think that's something that um, for people who aren't as familiar with open source and development, um, that's maybe uh, not so well understood point. But hopefully that's kind of the message is coming out with that and more people are coming around to that idea. So you've also got uh, Vassil Dimov. I I know uh, Vassil has been doing some uh, Bitcoin Core contributions. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, he uh, he has a, a really extensive career and, and resume in open source development in general. And um, the past, I don't know, six, six or, or 12 months, he's been contributing to Bitcoin Core. He's really focused on the peer-to-peer part and, and adding and, and privacy. And specifically, he wants to add support for Tor v3 to Bitcoin Core. And he's been making great great progress. Uh, you know, as you know, and probably a lot of your audience knows, contributing to Bitcoin Core uh, can be a, a lengthy exercise, especially if you're changing consensus code or peer-to-peer code. So it's really nice to see him make progress in the, peer-to- the peer-to-peer part. Um, I, I think I saw John Attack tweet today that he's running a, a branch of Vossels on, with, with Core that is running on Tor v3 now. So it's not yet merged. It's not yet in a released version of core, but it's starting, you know, it's getting closer and closer to that. And um, my understanding is that Tor v2 support is being deprecated as of next summer. Um, and and so the, the, there actually is some uh, some urgency to getting this, this change into Bitcoin core. Right. So the implication would be, so I think it's like July 2021 from what I've heard. And so the implication might be that if, 
we if Tor v2 is deprecated and we don't have Tor v3 support in Bitcoin Core, then that may be more doxing in terms of the privacy for a user who wants to be able to interact with Bitcoin through Tor only. They might now have to actually, I mean, there's probably other little workarounds they could do, but it's not going to be very practical for most people. And it would be just far simpler if they could just use Tor v3 with Bitcoin Core. Uh, That's my understanding of it. Um, But is that in line with what your understanding is? It is. I'm not super expert on this, but that that is consistent with my my understanding. And so, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully this work can get into the the next core release. Um, but it, time times are ticking on that. So I'm I'm not sure it'll make that release. But but in the next one, either the next release or the one after that, it seems realistic that it can get in, and that will be uh, that'll be a big win for core users. And I, I suppose part of the difficulty with you know working with Bitcoin Core and making putting things in and I mean partly for good reason there's a lot of concern around security and things might have to get rebased if there's other changes going on at the same time and so that can be and then getting the review done as well as we were talking about I guess these are some of the the hurdles that um, a core contributor might face in terms of getting a change through that that's right so yeah so we're the last two people we mentioned you know they're both Bitcoin core contributors and we're at Square Crypto super happy to support Bitcoin core development and, and I think what your audience will see in our grant program is that while our core team is focused on the Lightning Development Kit, one spe- specific project that, that's focused on Lightning Network, our grant program is broader. And, and it's broader in the sense that anything that's going to help Bitcoin, whether it be privacy, uh, security, scaling, user experience, we're, we're happy to fund grants in all those different areas. Now, the next one is a guy, he's actually from the Bitcoin Sydney scene. So Lloyd Fournier. So uh, he's doing some really cool work. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, why Square Crypto uh, supported Lloyd? Yeah, Lloyd's great. Um, we, we're we happy to support Lloyd for, for many reasons. I mean, one is that I think Bitcoin would really needs more applied cryptographers. Um, and I, I think Lloyd would not describe himself as a cryptographer but but he's certainly he's certainly applying cryptography to bitcoin um and uh historically most of the people doing that have been at blockstream and blockstream has a number of very talented people working on this and the one observation and i've talked to the folks at blockstream and 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 peter for example about this i you know i think well everyone they're working on open source Bitcoin is very well-intentioned, very talented, and I've seen no integrity issues. It's still unhealthy for Bitcoin if only one organization has everyone working on applied cryptography. So it's really great to, to support Lloyd. And, and, and in the case of Peter, he just left for, for Chaincode as well. So it's, it's good for Bitcoin to see other organizations other than Blockstream supporting this type of work. Um, I first came across Lloyd last fall when he was doing review work on Taproot. We, we started a Taproot review that had over 100 developers around the world who volunteered to spend seven weeks of their time reviewing Taproot. And he was one of them. And he really showed that he understood Taproot and cryptography at a deep level. And, and I think, um, you know, gained a lot of credibility with other Bitcoiners then. Um, yeah, and he, he has a number of projects that he's working on now that we're, that we're happy to support. Yep. So uh, as I understand, he's working on um, some ideas around DLC based 
Oracle, so that's discrete logarithm uh, contracts, and also looking at some things like alternative payment channel constructs, kind of like all possible alternatives to the Lightning Network. And there, yeah, and a third. Well, so the and there's a third project too. He has a version of lib, libsecp 256k1 uh, written in Rust that he. It's not intended for production, but it's great for experimentation. So anyone wanting to experiment with different cryptography, if you try to use the C-based production version, it, it can be difficult to, to program. This Rust-based version that he has, um, that, I, that I think he forked from the existing Rust one, he, he's, just, he's just tried to optimize for how do I make this easier for other experimenters and researchers to do quick work. And so that's one project he's working on. Um, a second project, you just mentioned the the discrete log contract based oracles. Um, ultimately, he'd love to be able to, you know, support lots of different types of, um, you know, uh, betting and different smart contracts using DLCs. So he's doing some infrastructure work there. I believe he helped out with a um, 2020 presidential election bet between Nicholas Dorier and um, I think Chris Stewart's on the other side of that, but a bunch of a bunch of folks are are, are working on that. I, I think it's it's on chain now, and I think Lloyd Lloyd helped with that too. Um, the third project is, as you mentioned, the, a, a new payment channel construct. Some other folks wrote a paper and published it recently. It doesn't. It's not. It's not really a, an alternative to Lightning Network. It's a, it's an alternative to the um, update mechanism within Lightning Network. I and, see. I see. And so. And it's still it's still early enough that even Lloyd is just sort of test teasing out. Does this even make sense? Is there is there are there reasonable trade offs with this approach? Is it actually an improvement over what is currently used? And um, you know, he's he's gone to the the developer email lists and gone back back and forth with several other developers on on that. I think it's not concluded yet, uh, but it could it, it could actually turn out to be uh, a clear win and improvement over the current mechanism. Even uh, pre uh, L two, I, I don't know if you've, if people have talked about L two before on, on on your program, E L T O O. That's another, you know, that's another improvement um, update improvement of the update mechanism, but one that requires a, a Bitcoin consensus change. What Lloyd's working on doesn't require a consensus change, so it it, it might be a like an intermediate term win. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for listeners interested, check out episode 200 with Christian Decker, where we spoke a little bit more in detail about any prev out and L2. But as you're saying, Steve, sometimes we have to, um, you know, consider the possibility that even if we didn't get those, uh, or uh, if we want these as an intermediate step, well, then having some of these alternative methods of achieving something similar uh, are worthwhile uh, looking at. Sorry, I just had to add a little bit to that um, in that Square Crypto is clearly believers in investing in in the Lightning Network. You know that that's our core project, so we're we're definitely believers in that. Um, but it's certainly not without risks. Uh, you know, number number one, Lightning Network can the tech can improve. So any kind of alternative to a portion of the Lightning Network infrastructure is interesting to us, and we're also interested in in completely different layer two approaches and scaling approaches as well. That um, that are that are you know can deliver on being decentralized, good user experience, etc. Um, so our grant program could could go towards that as well. But but so far, 
Lightning Network is where we think the the majority of the investment should should be for for layer, yeah. for layer two and scaling. You've got Steve Myers here as well, uh, related to Richard Myers working on uh, <laughs> you know Go Tenor and Lot Forty Nine as well. So tell us a little bit about what Steve's doing. Yeah, so I actually they're, they're brothers, and I, I Richard actually introduced me to Steve, and I'm I'm really happy he did because Steve had worked at Disney for a long time, and I think he is. But he's, but he's also been a long time uh, Bitcoiner, sort of as a hobbyist and on the side. And he was really, really itching to to be able to focus uh, fully on Bitcoin. So this grant enabled him to to uh, quit his job and and focus on Bitcoin. He's working on the Bitcoin Development Kit, which is which is it's a project that was another leading candidate for Square Crypto to focus on. Uh, but we you know we decided to focus on Lightning Development Kit. The Bitcoin development kit is very, very complementary to that in that it is a software development kit intended to make it 10 times easier to build a Bitcoin wallet. It's just focused on an on-chain wallet as opposed to layer two. Uh, so it's dealing with how do I get block data? You know, Am I getting full blocks from the peer-to-peer network? Uh, am I getting compact block filters through like BIP-157? Am I getting it from Electrum? There's all these different ways you can get block data. Each each has trade-offs. And as a wallet developer, there's really no great open source library or development kit you can use to, to do that, as well as do things like coin selection and, and key store and all the different things that a wallet has to do. So the goal with the BDK is to build out a library, again, very much like LDK, um, but for b- both those projects, the hope is that it's free open source, uh, not tied to any company or entity, uh, has, is as re- highly regarded as like the Bitcoin Core project and LibSecP256K1, which which are very trusted projects and, and people generally know that they have a lot of eyeballs, a lot of people reviewing and auditing them. Both the LDK and BDK project aspire to that as well. And, and hopefully in two or three years, if for anyone creating a new wallet, it just becomes like a no-brainer decision to start with the BDK and the LDK and then customize it from there based on what your goals are with your wallet and who your users are. And I guess one other comment that I, one observation I see as well is that um, there's been more of a focus recently, at least in recent years, around a move towards Rust. And so I think... There's probably a theme there as well, right? Like LDK is uh, using Rust and BDK is building on Rust Bitcoin as well. And uh, I know there are some kind of longer term ideas around what could be done in terms of Bitcoin Core with Rust as well. So do you see that as a bit of a thematic um, aspect there? I do. And uh, and I, I happen to be of the opinion too, that it's the right, it's the right decision for, for these libraries uh, to build them in Rust. And the the goal with BDK is is similar to LDK in that even though it's being written in Rust, the the intention is to have uh, APIs in a variety of popular languages that people are building applications and wallets in. So if you're building an iOS or iPhone wallet and you want to use Swift or you want to use JavaScript and like React Native, different technologies you should be able to access the functionality in the BDK and in the LDK and do it through a Swift or a JavaScript API. And similar with Android, 
you should be able to access it through a, a Java or Kotlin API. And as an application developer, you shouldn't need to know anything about Rust or touch any Rust code. So that, that's a goal that both of these projects share. It's a lot of work, um, and it's, it's not a whole lot of fun either. It, it's, um, it's a big part of the work that's being done this year for the, for the LDK. Um, but I think it's very crucial for adoption by developers um, because speaking with different wallet developers and projects, a big barrier to, for them to adopt another, uh, another uh, you know, third-party open source library is that if it's written in a language they don't know uh, or that they would you know, struggle to, to modify and update, then, then that, would, that would be a concern. So I think delivering these native APIs is very important. Let's uh, move on. So we've got Chris Belcher, another well-known, uh, well, he's a well-known privacy advocate and developer in the space. Uh, and he's working on CoinSwap. Can you tell us a little bit about your um, decision to fund Chris there? Sure. Um, what, one last quick thing about BDK that, that I, oh, yep. that, that's important to, to say it, it's actually, um, uh, it's an announcement that the, I don't know if you, you've covered the magical wallet before on, on your, on your show, but I haven't, no. there's yeah. another open source library that's been developed this, this past year, um, by a developer, an Italian developer named Alicos. And, uh, he came, he came from, he was at Blockstream last year and he's been, uh, focused on what he calls magic, magical, uh, library. It also is a Bitcoin development kit library and, I'm really excited to see in the past week, Steve Myers and Alicos uh, have been meeting up multiple times and they decided to merge their projects. They're, they're going to merge their efforts. And by all accounts, Alicos has done amazing work with the Magical Wallet Library. It's, it's already being uh, developed on by, by other projects. And they, they really, they have shared goals with their projects. And so it's just, it's wonderful to see Two, two developers be able to, to come to that decision to, to merge projects. Because to your point earlier in the show, you mentioned that oftentimes developers want to like code up a new feature or do their own thing versus review code. Another dynamic that's very common is a developer wants to just create a new project from scratch because it seems sexier or easier than to start contributing to an existing project. So I, I really admire Alicos and Steve to to you know join forces and merge their projects, and I think the the end result will be much stronger because of that. Yeah, actually, just on this while we're on this topic, uh, my understanding is uh, I haven't looked into it in a lot of detail, but as I understand the magical Bitcoin wallet, one of the ideas is it's very like supportive of Miniscript, and that might have some important implications in terms of people being able to have better like policy uh in terms of like the bitcoin scripting it requires them to be less advanced in terms of that because as i understand it helps them try to write the code in a way that's a bit easier for them to kind of and and this is like a thing within bitcoin core and i know andrew polster is big on this as well um so i suppose this would hopefully with all of that working together then it makes it a bit easier for people who want to do some of those more advanced spending conditions as opposed to just the typical single signature spend stuff right that that's absolutely right yeah so it it uh and and i think alicos has already made great progress on that so that that that's there and if if any listener wants to go to bitcoindevkit.org um that'll be it's that'll be the um 
the the website for for this project. Um, and it's a, a bit in, under construction right now because they're merging the two projects. But you'll you'll be able to get a sense for for their vision for for where this is headed. Fantastic. Oh. Yeah, so we can we can talk about Chris Belter now. Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about CoinSwap. <laughs> yeah, so you know Chris Belter has contributed to Bitcoin for for many years and 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 uh, has done a lot of great work for privacy. We're we're thrilled to to be able to support him and uh, human human rights uh, human rights foundation also uh, supports him with 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 a with a grant as well and and, and the project. Um, and just like I think he's done with you know on Join Market, he he. Um, he is excited about growing a active contributor base for for CoinSwap, so it's uh, just more, more just more than him, himself. Um, but I'm excited about the CoinSwap project because I think it's one of it's it's an ambitious project, um, but it's one that uh, you know so so it's far from certain that it's going to work out uh, and and or you know work. But if it does work, it could really move the needle on privacy. Because of the way that it works in terms of civil resistance, I think it's novel uh, in in its approach, and just the, the 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 kind of footprint it leaves on chain is distinct and different than uh, other approaches to to mixing coins and doing and doing swaps. Yeah, so that'll be really exciting to see. Uh, obviously, it's still early days uh, with coin swap, but with some more work, maybe we'll see that come to fruition and then maybe we'll see it used more in a day-to-day spend case and maybe it becomes a little bit more like a pay join sort of thing where it's more of a common thing that people will use coin swaps to pay for things exactly and and you and you you just said it but it is early days um you know they're still back and forth on the developer list about analyzing different attacks uh on this and and um you know i'm optimistic but we'll see We, we you know we have to sort of nail the design then of course implement it and chris intends to to implement it and then and then launch it and there needs to be a good user experience around it and, and maybe maybe it is kind of like uh pay join or just naturally works into the wallet so it's really easy for users to use which would be great um another thing that is needed for it to succeed is that there needs to be uh liquidity for this and th- this actually if successful could be really amazing um one aspect of Bitcoin holders that provide liquidity is that there there would be a way to earn interest on your Bitcoin while you retain your private keys. So your Bitcoin can be in your your self custody and your in your hardware wallet or, or what have you, and you're earning interest on that Bitcoin, which is a really amazing <laughs> aspect. I think uh, the the sacrifice or the cost your you're uh, making to do that is that you time lock your Bitcoin for a period of time, such as say six months. So, so that's that's the reason you're getting paid interest on it. Uh, so you you do bear a cost, but if you're a hodler, you don't really care. You likely don't care about having to lock your Bitcoin up for or at least some portion of your Bitcoin for six months. And it's a huge security win and counterparty risk win by by being able to retain your your private keys. I see. Yeah. So it kind of, it's reminiscent also of Chris Belcher's join market, which is where using the maker taker model. Now this is slightly different because the keys are hot, um, but that is another potential way for people to earn a small amount of sats by contributing their Bitcoins as coin join liquidity for other people who want to be takers in that model, who want to 
you know, uh, use that to get some privacy. So that's probably a, a little bit of an interesting parallel there with CoinSwap. Yeah. And I think the, the, the main difference is just, yeah, being able to keep it in cold storage and still earn earn interest is pretty cool. If that all works out, um, you know, e- even if you make like 50 basis points or something, if it is relatively good user experience and easy to use and you truly, if truly the only risk or cost you're taking is that you lock up your Bitcoin for a period of time, like six months, then uh, that's a pretty attractive deal, I think. The big win really will also be around breaking some of those privacy heuristics, right? The obvious one is the common input ownership heuristic and so on. So if these heuristics can be broken with sufficient use of these privacy techniques, things like pay join and things like potentially coin swap, um, then maybe that will uh, improve the overall story around Bitcoin's privacy and kind of make it a bit more of a more more like that fungible money that we're that we that we would like to see it become. Yep. Okay, so let's um, move on. So I know Square Crypto has the focus on Lightning. Sergi Delgado is working on Eye of Satoshi. So uh, how did uh, the, the support for this project come up? Yeah, it's similar to the Lightning Signer project in that this Eye of Satoshi is a, it's a Lightning infrastructure project that um, you know isn't tied to any particular Lightning implementation. So it can work with with uh, in fact, I think it does work with like C Lightning and can work with any of the Lightning implementations, and it's an important part of Lightning becoming successful. I think um, for Lightning to be used by mobile phones, uh, it currently looks like wa- third-party watchtowers are going to be, or or I shouldn't say third <clears throat> third-party, but really a watchtower, whether you're running it <laughs> from your like your home server or it's a third-party. But watchtowers are, are an important part of the security model. And if you dive into watchtowers, there's some pretty, you know, pretty significant trade-offs you can make between uh, privacy and security and how much it might cost in uh, a bunch of other parameters. So I think it's important to have, number one, a free open source version that, that anyone can use. And number two, to have a healthy market of different watchtowers that are running that make those different trade-offs so that users have good choices. Sergi's done some interesting work around comparing the different watchtower types as well. So I think he was comparing, say, like the LND, Lightning Labs version of watchtowers versus, uh, you know, uh, the other ones that are out there. And he's trying to move the ball forward in terms of making watchtowers more feasible uh, and put them into practice, I think. That's right. He he gave a really good presentation at Advancing Bitcoin in London last, I think it was February, um, that, that reviewed that. Yeah, so we're really happy to support that that project too and in, in, in his work on I of Satoshi. Fantastic. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about designs. This has also been a focus of Square Crypto. So can you tell us a little bit about why you're focusing on this and uh, what, what are some of the projects that you are advancing in this area? Yeah, uh, from from the beginning of Square Crypto, we felt that design is is very important, and that it's also very underfunded and and uh, mostly non-existent in open source. Um, a lot of the design that we do see in Bitcoin comes from companies, but very little in open source. And so a year ago, we announced um, that we were seeking a, a full time designer to join the Square Crypto team. To sort of lead the charge on this, and 
over the ensuing nine months or so, we talked to around 70 different designers from around the world, none of whom we hired for that job. And it wasn't because we didn't meet amazing people. We, we met many, you know, many amazing people, very talented, just none of them checked all the boxes we were looking for. So we took a step back last April or May and uh, asked ourselves, is there another way to, to approach this? And what we, what we realized is that we've met dozens of talented people who are principal Bitcoiners who want to contribute to open source Bitcoin, each has their own set of talents, and the combination of those folks can lead to a very powerful design community and powerful uh, way to improve Bitcoin design. So we went ahead and just announced <laughs> announced a, a Bitcoin design community and brought brought these folks together. And we 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 spoke um, individually with twenty or so people that that we had previously met. They all loved the idea, and once we announced it, that that community grew very quickly. It's it's six hundred people now um, that are part of the the Bitcoin design Slack, and the vast majority of which are creatives, you know, whether they be user experience researchers or designers or artists uh, or copywriters, um, just creative people, you know, a di different type of person than um, the, the developers that are so prominent in Bitcoin. So it's, it's really great to see that. Another observation is that the, I, I think the reason why we, we had 600 people join so quickly is that we just identified there's this pent up demand to create a community for many, many, many years. The designers have had an interest in Bitcoin, but they feel like they're off in their own little island. They had no place to go, and now now they have a community that they can they they can go to. And um, you know, it's not just the Slack, but they the designers on there are creating. You know, they're doing whiteboard session, remote whiteboard sessions, and video calls to do design reviews. Every few weeks, we do a community call and have 30, 35 people show up. To, to talk about the design community. And it's just a really uh, healthy, active community that, that, that I'm excited about. What are some of the ways in which that design community might influence Bitcoin development or Bitcoin application? Maybe it's more like application development. Yeah, I think two, a couple, couple, couple different ways. One is that the, the main work product that we want to create as a community is a Bitcoin design guide, uh, which will have m many different aspects to it. Um, Three obvious sections of this design guide would be onboarding, private key management, and payments. And, but you know, but there's an, we have an outline for what this could could look like and, and what we're envisioning. Those are three example sections. Um, and we have uh, Square Crypto's given out grants to designers to to focus on those sections. Not that they're going to be the only person contributing to it, but just to get it going. I mean, right, right now we're at a point with this design community where we just need to start producing some content to get it out there and then iterate on it. Um, so that's the current state of things. So the the Bitcoin design guide is one one piece of this. Another way that we're already seeing designers contribute is actually go contribute to existing projects. So there's some energy around helping the Bitcoin Core project with the the GUI wallet, and so there's a few designers who are working on that. They're collaborating with some of the develop, uh, developers on Bitcoin Core uh, to make those improvements. So that's nice to see. Um, there's one of the designers is working with a, a multi-sig open source project to improve its user experience. Um, so I think there can be a lot of, 
just by we can help each other guide and provide um, sort of a yeah just provide a guide to designers about here's how you can contribute to an open source project because it's it's not very common to do that and if we can create those bridges and get designers helping different open source projects it'll not only improve those individual projects but the learnings from that can be fed back into the Bitcoin design guide. Excellent. I like the idea about focusing on existing well-known wallets, whether they are, you know, Bitcoin Core or maybe like Electrum or some of these other projects that are already out there and existing, they could do with some uh, design expertise. And so you've got a few people who you've given some grants to. You've got Jamal, is it Jamal Montasa and uh, Project Horizon. So, so what's Project Horizon? Yeah, so I'm really excited about Jamal's project because it's the first user experience uh, research grant that we've given out. So we're sort of green at this. We do, you know, we we're, we're going to learn, um, but we we do value user experience research. And he's going to take a look at Bitcoin Core and full node users, as well as people who don't use it, and to understand why they don't why they don't use it, and just to explore a bunch of questions that that we have around um, full node and Bitcoin core usage. And we've reached out and spoken to several, several of the longtime uh, Bitcoin core developers to get their input into this process. Um, and the, the hope with the final result of this is to gain some insights that can just provide some direction and guidance for, for future development on the existing Bitcoin core wallet um, as well as any any future wallets that might want to have a full node um, aspect of of their of their wallet should be able to derive insights from this research project. Yeah, that's a tough one because it's like people get turned off by having to let's say store uh, was it three hundred and twenty gig gigs or what, roughly that amount uh, that the Bitcoin blockchain is now, um, and there might be people who. You know, they, they don't necessarily have an always-on computer. So I guess these are some of the difficulties um, that people have to try and uh, design for. Yeah, I just like to get some data and better understand where, where um, are what's people's awareness even of Bitcoin Core in a full node. Like, you know, how many people... It, it can be easy to get caught up into Bitcoin Twitter and think that everyone knows about this stuff, but... Um, of you course, know, it's quite reasonable that a large percentage of people buying on Cash App and Coinbase have never even heard of Bitcoin Core and don't even know about it. Don't even know about the benefits of running your own full node. And you know, so if we have some data that suggests that, that would be good to know because it can suggest where we can spend more time on whether it's coding or design or marketing or you know awareness, etc. Um, for those that are aware of Bitcoin Core, yeah, understanding their pain points. Like, did they give up because of the long uh, initials sync or the resource requirements, or did they give up because it sounds intimidating? I, I actually think there might be a large population of people that have heard of Bitcoin Core and they don't even try to use it because they're intimidated. And and they might, you know, if they, if they actually tried to download it and run it, they might find that it's not not as hard as they might have thought. So there's all these open questions, and hopefully this project can. Um, provide some some data as well as uh, qualitative um, you know research too just getting 
understanding, you know, getting, getting quotes from users and, and sort of understanding the emotional aspect of, of using it too. Excellent. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think you make a really good point around the intimidation point. And um, yeah, I guess it, it kind of comes to if someone's a casual Bitcoiner versus the hardcore Bitcoiner. But let, let's talk a little bit about some of your other design uh, grant recipients. So you've got um, Christoph Ono. Yeah. So Christoph's great. He's he's doing a number of things. And first and foremost, he is doing a really great job at helping the design community get organized. And as you can imagine, a newly announced community that has 600 people sign up right away and start and join Slack, it, it was pretty chaotic <laughs> uh, at the start. Um, and, and, and now a lot of that initial chaos has died down, but you still have you know, dozens of active people that are contributing and hundreds who are interested in staying staying on top of things and knowing what's going on. And it needs some organization, needs some leadership. But this is a decentralized community. And we I, I really try to emphasize that. And I've been really happy so far with the rest of the community recognizing that this is Bitcoin design and, and it's decentralized. You know, I, I'm not even though I, I kickstarted this and Square Crypto kickstarted it, you know, this is not a Square Crypto or, or Steve thing. Um, so Christoph has really helped shoulder a lot of the load of organizing and and, and uh, what I call you know, decentralized leadership in the community. He's also contributing to one section of the Bitcoin Design Guide, which is the getting started section. And that's that's getting started for designers because there's a lot of designers who are going to be new to Bitcoin and new to open source. And so that part of the guide is just to help them bring them up to speed so that they can utilize their talents on, on open source Bitcoin design. And the, the third area that Christoph is contributing is he wants to, to contribute to it directly to an, uh, a, a, an open source product. Um, and he's, He's interested in multi-sig, so he's looking at, at, at that. Yeah, there's a lot of um, contributions and uh, a lot of people uh, you've been supporting as well. Um, it, it sounds really uh, interesting to see the different directions and ways uh, you contribute in this kind of crazy open source, decentralized way without no, well, with no top-down leader. It's just kind of people form a project and then see whoever else wants to join. And then, uh, but I guess the downside could also be there might be a lot of duplicated or quote-unquote wasted effort. And it's about how do you efficiently leverage things that are already out there uh, as opposed to creating the wheel over and over. Yeah, although I think that can be addressed fairly easily in a, in a decentralized way. I mean, I mean, cer- certainly from like Square Crypto's investments, like we'll replace our, um, our funding, you know, we're, we're, we're act, you know, we, we wouldn't want to create uh, duplicate projects in, in that. Funding. Yeah, of course. And then, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's sort of obvious, but um, e- even if it's, you know, anytime I see a duplicate effort in the space, I'll, I'll reach out and just chat with folks Um and just mentioning it, you know, just 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 uh, you know, pre- presenting the option to them that hey, yeah, maybe you can join join forces, or maybe you should chat with so and so. They're working on something similar. And what I've seen is just like super. Everyone's like positive and welcoming around that. Um, and yeah, pe- people chat with each other. So I, I think I think generally people have the right intentions. 
it's typically just the lack of awareness of what other folks are, are working on. So, um, yeah. you know, th- that's why, I, I mean, I, I sort of, uh, th- that's a role I like to, to play. And I'd love, you know, I'd love to see other people. And there are several other people in Bitcoin who play a similar role, which is really just sort of like um, decentralized coordinator almost for, for different different efforts. Yeah, that's a cool idea. <laughs> Yes, uh, and you've got a few other people uh, with design uh, grants as well. Uh, we should chat about some of them. So I've seen uh, an interesting one, Thor Bjorn Koenig, working on like visual, verbal, and musical ways to memorize seeds. That's certainly um, very different. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this project is definitely a bit out there and risky, but I think it's I think it's super interesting. I mean, I think we can all agree that private key management is both super critical to Bitcoin success and really hard to do in a secure way where you don't have your keys stolen or lost. And I think most of the investment so far in improving that has been from a cryptographer perspective, which is obviously a very important perspective um, to improve things. But there's been much less innovation and research around um, things like Thor is is focusing on, um, which is, are are there other means to memorize a portion or all of your private key? And so he's exploring like music and 3D shapes and all kinds of different things, which sound sound a bit crazy. And certainly some people's initial instincts and concerns, which which I'd like to address, uh, number one, I don't think Thor or myself uh, w- would be an advocate for a, a brain wallet only approach to your to your private keys. Um, if you only store your private key in your head, you are at risk of forgetting it um, or having uh, or, or you know or permanent you know permanently forgetting your private key and then you'd lose your your Bitcoin. So that's not the intention here. And I've heard other other uh, comments on this, like you might. Sing your private key in your sleep or something and lose it, <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty funny. Um, and but I mean, funny, but also you know, I, like um, that would not be a great way to lose your Bitcoin, right? So there, there are ways to use what comes from his project, not for your full private key, but maybe just a portion of your private key. Um, maybe you're using BIP thirty nine plus a passphrase, so maybe this helps you remember your passphrase. Um, or maybe you're using 24 words, and this helps you memorize half of that. And it could be just used in conjunction with your overall you know, self-custody strategy, uh, and, I, and I think could be interesting. And another idea I've heard is that in, in a multi-sig or Shamir secret sharing setting where multiple people or multiple keys are involved, you know, this, especially in the case of like a Shamir secret sharing where you might have family members participating you might have some family members that are stronger you know their their brain is just wired to be stronger at visual or or um tonal um and maybe that's how they memorize their their portion of the secret certainly early days for that kind of thing as well um because it's kind of like there's a lot of different yeah like the standards around how it would work with that um i guess aren't as clear or um set out but i mean th- that that could certainly evolve over time um are there any other uh design uh grantees you wanted to highlight 
Yeah, that's really quick. So Daniel Nord, um, he used to be a design manager at Coinbase and left last fall. Um, he he was instrumental in, in helping us get the design community off the ground. So big hats off to him. And he's a he's a grantee uh, as well. And he where he focuses his time now for, for the design community is around the private key management section for the design guide, which is arguably the most important section. So he's focused on that. And then the the um, last grant that we've given out for designers um, is for Johns Bahari, and he's focused on the payment section of the design guide. Um, and there's already several different payment protocol in Bitcoin for you know layer two and on chain, and you throw in coin joins and pay joins, and um, it, it's a bit you know it, it's both been designed by developers and independently designed by different groups. So he's going to try to. Bring you know be able to summarize where we're at and, and deliver best practices for what we have, and then also focus on um, what are future potential protocols or merging of some of these protocols for best practices for for developers and and designers. Yeah, that's an interesting one as well because it could be confusing to someone who's not deeply into this space about oh is that a Bitcoin address or is this a lightning invoice? And is there a pay join inside the QR? And does that, you know, can my wallet read that correctly? And, you know, even, even today uh, with BTC pay server, um, sometimes some newer users get a little confused because they don't know that you can flip between Bitcoin or lightning at the top. And so that can also be a bit confusing for them also. So I guess some of these are efforts around how to streamline these as well. Right. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, so we're, we've given out five designer grants. Uh, there'll probably be a few more, um, this fall and, uh, we, we welcome other companies to, to see the value in supporting open source design, um, and, and to, to do funding as, as well. So it's not, not just from square crypto. I think it'll become more and more evident, evident once we have a design guide for people to see. Um, and then ultimately, Again, what I'm imagining in, in a couple of years is that th- there's going to be the LDK, the BDK in this design guide, and those three will probably be merged into one package. And if you are wanting to create a new wallet or application, you just download this package and it, it helps your whole team, both the design team and the developer team uh, to, to build a new Bitcoin application much, much more rapidly. Um, instead of doing everything from scratch, you're just focused on what you want to optimize for. And it goes from like a year long project to get a V1 out to being like in a weekend, you could have something, you know, out there ready for, for feedback and testing from users. Certainly a cool vision uh, to be building towards. Also, while we've got you here, Steve, we've got a chat about the new Square Crypto Patents or COPA. So uh, can you just give us an overview? What is COPA? Yeah, so really excited to, to see this introduced. Um, it's an open patent alliance. And the intention is to create a defensive patent shield uh, for developers, open source projects, or companies in the space to help protect them and protect the foundational cryptocurrency technologies that everyone's building upon. There's what the situation we want to avoid is where technology goes into open source software, let's say, like the Bitcoin core 
or the, sorry, the, the, the Bitcoin consensus protocol or lightning protocol. And then if, and then in the future have a patent troll or patent aggressor assert their patents against that. And I think it's one reaction from Bitcoiners is like, well, too bad Bitcoin's decentralized. Who are you going to sue? Um, however, you, you know, companies can be sued. And while Bitcoin will survive without this company or that company or even all companies, it certainly would decelerate the adoption of Bitcoin. Um, I mean, I, I'm certainly a believer that that uh, healthy, productive companies in the space have have improved the user experience and have accelerated the adoption of Bitcoin. So it would be it would be bad for Bitcoin to have that uh, disrupted. And to whatever extent there's risk in even individual developers being sued, uh, which would be highly unfortunate, um, this could provide protection uh, for those developers as well. And some of the feedback I saw was, uh, why crypto and not Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah, which we, you know, I, I, I love that feedback because I, w- one thing I love about the Bitcoin community is is keeping keeping you on on your toes. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that's that's an important um, attribute of the Bitcoin community and 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 what helps strengthen Bitcoin. So I welcome that feedback. Uh, rest assured, myself and Square Crypto, we are still very focused on on Bitcoin. So the answer to why why crypto and you know why is it COPA and not um, BOPA or you know Bitcoin Open Patent Alliance? Well, it's because even if the, your your only interest is in Bitcoin. That still doesn't mean that a another another project or like, or like a patent aggressor who has patents that are quote outside Bitcoin can't sue you or or can't sue you know a company that's doing Bitcoin. Um, so Copa would absolutely welcome any member, um, including um, you know non Bitcoin cryptocurrency projects or companies that support different coins um, or multiple coins. Um, Copa even welcomes bad actors. Like if you, even if if you've been a a patent aggressor in the past, you're welcome to join Copa because guess what? Then you can't be a patent aggressor. Um, (laughs) So, so Copa is very open, open and welcoming to, uh, to anyone that's, you know, within the scope of the, the foundational cryptocurrency uh, technologies, and um, yeah, that that's why it's that's why it's scoped at crypto and not you know in cryptocurrencies and not and not just Bitcoin. I see. And what are the requirements to join? There, there, there really, there really are none. Like uh, in the sense, like I said, you know, it's you don't have to be a corporation. You don't have to have a certain amount of employees or revenue. It you can be a small company. You can be a startup. Uh, you can be an open source project. You can be an individual. Uh, it's it's open to open to anyone. And the the two the two main aspects of Copa number one is a patent pledge. So if you join any patents that you have that fall within the scope of Copa, which are foundational cryptocurrency patents, you you pledge that you will not use them in sort of an offensive way. You know, you, you would not assert those against anyone else unless it's for defensive reasons. Um, and, oh, another th- another feedback I've heard is that, oh, we, 
we don't have any patents, so we're probably not welcome. That's actually not not the case at all. You can have you can have no patents and you can still join. Um, you can you can have an internal organizational philosophy of we'll never have a patent. You're still welcome to join and reap the benefits of this of of the organization and that you can use the, the 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 patent shield, which is everyone's patents that joins is collectively used. Um, you get that that benefit. So you don't need any patents. You can hate patents. You can hate the patent system, <laughs> um, which a lot of people do, including myself. Um, and COPA can make a lot of sense because we, even if you hate the patent system, you still have to deal with reality. And and I think COPA is the next best thing to having no patent system at, at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly in a similar camp. I come from the uh, Stefan Kinsella point of view of being anti-intellectual property, but I can still see some value uh, in COPA for that reason, as you said, defensive reasons. Maybe we should talk about defensive reasons. What is classified as a defensive reason? The most obvious is that you're you're sued. <laughs> um, you know, you're you're sued, uh, and and the claim is that you're using certain IP that another another entity owns, um, and then <clears throat> you can use your your own patents that you've pledged to COPA, as well as all other patents that have been pledged to COPA, all of those, you know, I refer to it as a defensive patent shield, all of those can be used in defense of being sued. Um, there's, so I think that, I think that one's fairly, fairly straightforward and obvious. Um, there's also a carve out for copycat usage. And, and that would be like, if a, if someone wholesale copies like your UI of of your product, um, then you could then you could use it to to defend against that. Um, so there's there's a couple there's a couple carve outs like that. Um, I would recommend anyone interested in Copa definitely read the membership agreement, which is on which is on the website uh, open-patents.org. Um, read through that to understand the agreement. It is fairly, fairly complicated because it's 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 a challenge, and and the 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 lawyers and the team at, at at Square that put this together had a huge challenge, and I think they I think they've struck the right balance because you need to make it attractive enough that um, entities with patents will join, um, but also it needs to be um, it needs to uphold the whole intention and purpose of COPA, which is this patent pledge and created, creating a defensive pat, patent shield. So I think the right balance has been struck. Um, having said that, you know, we're very welcome to, to feedback. Uh, we, this, this is just to emphasize, this is not like a, this is not a square um, centric initiative. COPA is a separate entity. It's a nonprofit entity. It's intended to be in, you know, independent and fair for all Bitcoin and cryptocurrency companies and, and projects. So we want to get this right. So if people see ways to improve the membership agreement, we're we're happy to you know we're listening and we're, we're happy to modify that if, if if it makes sense. And have you had any companies and members join? I think I saw some chatter about Blockstream potentially joining. Yeah. So Blockstream publicly said that they're going to join, um, which which is fantastic, and it's. Um, it's not, also not surprising. I mean, Blockstream has a long history in 
doing similar things. In fact, I think four years ago they they had you know announced their own patent pool and defense def- defensive patent pool, which like the EFF wrote about. And um, so so this is very aligned, I think, with their philosophy and vision. Um, so we're we're very happy to have Blockstream in t- you know planning to join Copa. Um, I'm also really happy. Several. Um, not so, but m- many major companies in cryptocurrency have already responded and, and reached out, expressing interest. Um, they haven't committed yet, so I, I, I don't want to share their names, but but it's it's very encouraging. So I think I think there's there's a good chance that we will see a lot of um, you know major cryptocurrency companies join, and for startups to you know. Every company, every organization will need to, to evaluate this on on their you know for them for them if it makes sense for them. But I think as a startup, it really can be beneficial because you are kind of a sitting duck um, as a, as a small startup that does not have a lot of resources because a patent troll. Um, one strategy for a patent troll is you don't start with the five you know or the eight hundred pound gorilla. You start with small the smaller folks who can't defend themselves and you rack up legal win after legal win and it helps build your case so that then you can go after the larger organizations with, with more money. And so I just, I sort of fear for startups that they're, they're sitting ducks. So I think Copa can make a lot of sense for, for a startup as well. And then I'll be interested to, to see reaction from open source projects and developers as well, uh, whether, whether they find this compelling and compelling enough to, to, to join and also it's an interesting world with all the patents and it's almost like you need a war chest uh, and so some of the big companies like apple and google and samsung obviously are big enough they've got their own war chest and so anyone who wants to go to war they kind of have the funding and their own patents to kind of use in defense where i think to the point you were making it's that it, it can make it difficult for an upstart or a small competitor to uh, try and um, compete in that world because, well, arguably there's been kind of a centralization that has been driven by intellectual property laws. And so um, this is potentially one way that the industry can allow for the creation of newer projects and actually permit more innovation. Yeah. And it, that's actually a big, that's a big reason I'm I'm not a fan of the patent system. I saw firsthand up close at Google, how this works. So Google, of course, once was a startup, and Google had a philosophy of, you know, of not being a patent aggressor and not even really caring about filing patents. Like, who cares? Like, let's just build great products and great software and deliver that to users and build a business. And that was Google's focus, which is great. And I feel like that's that mindset is is you know the mindset of many people in crypto companies and working on open source software as well um, but then comes a day when your company is making enough money that it becomes a target for patent aggressors and patent trolls and or or, or other just aggressive companies and then all of a sudden you you realize oh i need this war chest and so you start doing things like buying Motorola for billions of dollars and creating an internal machine to create patents. Um, 
And, you know, I, I was part of that machine at Google. I think I had something like 25 or 30 patents in my name um, at Google. And, and it's just, it was all part of this machine. They, they create a very efficient machine driven by lawyers that makes it very, not require much time by engineers and, and product managers to create patents at organization. And it allows a large organization to create hundreds and thousands of patents in their war chest. Even if that corporation didn't even want to do that. <laughs> they're sort of they're just the way the dynamics work out, they're forced to do that. Um, yeah, then, then they have this war chest and all of a sudden the patent system is no longer really protecting the little guy or you know the, 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 the lone inventor who doesn't want to be squashed by big companies. The patent system is really not helping that person. Just to make it real for listeners, do you know of any example patents or technology that would go inside COPA? Yeah, so Square has already committed to um, transferring and pledging all of its crypto patents to to COPA. Um, there's seven to ten or so that have been identified, just just to give a feel for how many. And one that your listeners might be aware of just because it made the news back in January of this year, Coindesk and a lot of other uh, organizations um, talked about this patent. But, you know, the the Coindesk uh, headline is Jack Dorsey Square wins patent for fiat to crypto payments network. And that made that made a big splash. And even at that that time. Some people were fans of that, that Square won that, and other, other people in Bitcoin community were concerned because here's a you know, large company that, that has potentially a very crucial patent, um, and what, what kind of nefarious things could Square do with that? Well, I'm happy to say that uh, Square's going to transfer that, that patent to COPA so that anyone that joins COPA has access to that, that patent um, for defensive purposes. And by Square transferring it to COPA, it means that Square will never assert that patent uh, against any anyone, even even non-members of COPA. Yeah, that's great to see. And um, I think that's probably a really great example for the listeners who might have had a concern when they saw that news earlier in the year. Just with COPA, in terms of sustainability, how does COPA sustain itself into the future? Yeah, so it it will the the first year I think Square is planning to to like fund any kind of operational costs. Um, after that, it would be membership fees. And I think what Square said publicly right now is just TBD. Um, but I think there's a desire at Square to state those fees sooner, sooner than later. I, I can certainly say that the, the goal here is not to, to rent seek on <laughs> COPA. Um, yep. the COPA does not, like Square and COPA do not want to maximize revenue from membership fees um, the, the desire is to keep it as you know lean and mean as as, as possible um, and you know it and it, it it is classified as a nonprofit organization the governance of it will be a board of directors of uh, nine people and a mix of independent board directors and um, people from member companies um, yeah. So that and and as far I don't expect operational costs to be to be that much. Maybe um, like one full time person on an ongoing basis who would be probably an IP attorney 
but also someone who's just helps with all the operational aspects of, of COPA. Excellent. Um, and uh, let's also chat a little bit about what the team is doing on LDK. Do you have any updates for us there? Yeah, I can give a quick update. So yeah, in January, we announced that the the core team at Square Crypto would focus on Lightning Development Kit. The progress to date, I mentioned earlier in the program, the um, creating APIs and different programming languages to make it to lower the barriers for developers to use LDK. Um, that has been a, a major thrust this year. Arik and Matt in particular have done a lot of work to make it so that Swift and JavaScript and Java can be used um, uh, with LDK. That's one aspect. Another is just a lot of um, what developers call refactors. It's really just taking... The, the LDK is the engine of the LDK is the Rust Lightning project that Matt Carlo um, started a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, I think he started that project as, as sort of a, a hobby project that where he wanted to learn Lightning and he wanted to learn Rust. And his you know original intention with that project was not to turn it into this production quality, robust um, piece of software. And so another major thrust this year from the team is turning it, turning it into that. And that includes redoing a lot of the code internally, as well as redoing some of the, the APIs and the touch points where other developers who are the users of LDK would, would use, use the LDK. And we've received a lot of feedback, too, from prospective LDK users that have helped guide us into you know, what, what the API should look like. So that's, that's the two um, primary areas that we've done development. We, there's also been a little bit of feature catch-up. So... LDK now um, is pretty much fully compliant with the Lightning specification, just like the other Lightning implementations. Our goal is by this fall, so in a few months, um, to have have an LDK website where a developer can just download the LDK and there's an example application that you can build and run and you have a Lightning node up and running with the LDK and you don't have to write a line of code. Um, <clears throat> and then from there, is where uh, a developer could could start customizing. For example, you might want to integrate LDK into your existing Bitcoin wallet to add Lightning functionality. Um, like the the Electrum project would be an example. They they ended up having to write their own Lightning implementation. But if somehow magically the LDK existed two years ago when they made that decision, they could have just downloaded the LDK, plugged it into Electrum, and used that to add Lightning capabilities. So Hopefully, starting this fall, we'll start to see more more projects begin to experiment and tinker with with LDK. Yeah, it's an interesting one there with Electrum. And um, from my episode chatting with, I actually brought that up with the Electrum guys. Uh, and I think in their minds, they were more interested in the idea of having it their own, um, partly because they wanted to have it all in Python and perhaps they wanted a little bit more control over it for themselves. But um, potentially, uh, maybe, you know, it kind of missed the boat with Electrum, but perhaps in uh, other wallet cases, they may be interested to try using LDK. And maybe there's some other wallets out there that are currently only Bitcoin on-chain and they would like to have a Lightning component as well. So maybe those are potential uh, candidates for further use. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we, we, have a li- we have a list of over 30 wallets that are interested in using LDK. Um, so I think that there's, there's ample evidence that there is demand. We just, 
it, LDK just needs to to mature to a point where it, where it's realistic for those projects to to integrate it. But we're very optimistic that um, that the software will will get used and and ultimately just you know make it way easier to to build a wallet and build a great great user experience. I guess just turning more broadly with Bitcoin and Lightning, what are you excited about for? What are you excited for, Steve? Uh, I mean, at the highest level, adoption. You know, just more more adoption of Bitcoin, and that that comes in that comes in stages. Uh, obviously, a predominant use case today is just hodling and, and speculative investment. Um, but you know, we're already I think we're already seeing it mature to being a little less speculative and a little bit more um, confidence that, that this is going to be a, a very sound investment. Um, but as you can see from where Square Crypto is investing, we're trying to, to make Bitcoin more than just an investment. So we're, we really look forward to seeing Bitcoin be, be used as, as money. And that's maybe a 10-year you know, long marathon roadmap. But, but um, yeah, we're, we're, we're just excited to, to see each, each year of, of progress and improvement towards that, that 10-year vision. Excellent. Uh, Steve, for any listeners who would like to follow you online or uh, find out more, where can they find you? Uh, Twitter is probably the best place. I'm, uh, my handle there is Moneyball, so M-O-N-E-Y-B-A-L-L. And uh, my, my DMs are open, so feel free to reach out and say hi. Well, really enjoyed chatting. Thank you for joining me. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Impressive how Steve is able to keep all these different projects in his head at one time, isn't it? Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels. 